Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of John. The 11th chapter is where we will be today. Uh, before we get into that, I want to kind of do just a little background to where we've been. The last few weeks we've been in John chapter 10. Just as a, as a reminder, Jesus had gone into the temple, and this is getting close to uh, in his third year of ministry, and uh, oh, kids, if you want to go to your program, you can go do that right now. I've got people back there waving to me. Children are needing leave. So if you've got someone up to third grade, kindergarten, nursery, whatever, you all can head out and for your children's ministry stuff. All right. Now next week, however, as Alan said, it'll be up through fifth grade. And uh, so we'll still have them in during our worship time singing, and then they can head on out. Well, as I was just mentioning, Jesus had been in the temple, and he didn't like what he saw because the people there were, were taking advantage of the people who had to come to give their offering and their sacrifice for their sins, and so they were upping the price on a few things and uh, fleecing the people, the sheep that were there. And so Jesus went in, he overturned some tables, the carts, and he ran the people out of the temple and, and explaining to them this is his father's house, which is not supposed to be a house where you can take advantage of people financially, but it's supposed to be a house of prayer. They didn't like some of the things that he was saying, and so they were trying to get a hold of him as the debate kind of raged there, and they wanted to get a hold of him and kill him. But he made it out without them touching him, and as he headed down out of the, of the Temple Mound area, they passed by a, a fellow who was blind, and he'd been sitting there by the gate, not all his life, but every day the family or friends might bring him there and he could sit and beg. And so the conversation was, well, why is he blind? Is it because he sinned or his parents sinned? And, God, and Jesus said, no, none of that. It's because the glory of God is going to be revealed in, in, in this moment today. And so he healed that blind man, which made the other Pharisees and, and leaders of the law a little upset because this was a Saturday, the Sabbath, and so now they wanted to get him again and uh, it wasn't too happy about the conversation that he'd had with them, accusing them of doing things that were ungodly, when after all, they were the godly ones, right? And so they picked up stones, and they're getting ready to throw stones at him for a second time that day. They're really after him. And so he left. And he headed down out of the mountain range in there of Jerusalem, and he headed down to the Jordan Valley. And this is where chapter 11 comes in. He's just gotten away from the people up in Jerusalem that are trying to kill him. And he's gone down across the Jordan River to the area where John the Baptist had been baptizing people and how, where he had been preaching. So he spends time there and the people receive him with open arms and they believe in him. However, there were a few that did not quite agree with what he was saying still. So the turmoil is still building as those who are the religious people listening to Jesus and being confronted by their own sinfulness. Well, while Jesus is over there in that region, they get a message. The messenger comes running down the mountainside down to, to find Jesus and let him know that he's got a friend up in Bethany that is sick, his friend by the name of Lazarus. And so they, they ask him to come because they know that Jesus is this wonderful miracle worker and that he could, he could heal Lazarus immediately. And, and so they want him to come, but Jesus says, no, we're not going to go. And his disciples don't understand why he wouldn't go take care of Lazarus. But he says, don't worry about it. Well, they should have worried about it, they thought, because a little bit later you get the message that, G, that Lazarus is dead. And Jesus is trying to identify the fact that no, he's just asleep 
And I need to go and I need to awaken him. They're confused. Is he asleep or is he, is he dying? What's happening here? And, and Jesus plainly tells them, no, Lazarus is dead. And so we need to go back. So it creates a little bit of a struggle for them at this moment because now they're going to head back up towards Jerusalem where they know that the people are trying to kill Jesus and they don't really want to go up there because they're afraid that they're going to kill him. However, Thomas uh, is bold enough to say, hey, let's go with him and we, we, we can die up there with him. All right. this, is, this is what they're facing. We're going to head back up and we're possibly going to lose our lives because we're with Jesus, but we're going to go and he's going to somehow do something with Lazarus. That's where our story begins. So we're in John chapter 11, and as they get there, Jesus finally comes in, and he, he sees a lady walking on the road out to meet him, and it's Martha. Now he remembers who Martha is. Martha's Lazarus' sister, and she also has another sister, Mary, who was the one who had poured the perfume on his feet and wiped it with her hair and, and, and did all these things. Well, they, they're friends, and they're, they're very close together, and she comes and tells Jesus, you're too late. You're too late. If you had been here, he wouldn't have died. You know, we always have those what if questions, don't we? What if Jesus had been there early? What if, you know, he could have saved him? So she's upset. But Jesus says, well, don't worry about that. Do you believe in me? Well, yes, I believe. I know you're the son of God. I know that you're the one that we've been anticipating. Well, if you believe in me, you don't need to worry about this because he makes this statement I am the resurrection and the life. And if anyone believes in me, even if he dies, yet shall he live. And he asks her a simple question, do you believe this? I guess that's the question that we start with today. Do you believe the statement from Jesus that he says, I am the resurrection and the life? Do you honestly believe that he is, has the capability of not only coming back to life himself, but that he has the ability to bring us back to life as well? So that's what we're going to kind of look at today. Now there's a story about a, a devoted Christian gentleman, and he was dying, but his family had had some difficulties like a lot of families and so there were some who weren't really talking and others who were spread out and, and, and he, he had a dream a vision that at his death all of his children were there and they were singing with him and so he told one of his daughters that and so she, she did everything she could to get the rest of the family there because his health continued to slip and finally he went into a comatose state and he was unresponsive for days in the hospital the doctor says, well, it's, it's getting close. Well, his daughter was able to get all of her siblings there. They were there in the room with him as he was passing. And they stood around his bed and they began to sing, It is well with my soul. By the time they got to the second chorus, their father was singing with them. And just as they finished that song, he passed. I think, man, what a way to go. What a powerful impact that had to have had on his children. To know that his desire was for them to be there and, and to understand his faith in Christ was what motivated them and that he wanted them to know that as well. And as they're all singing, somehow out of the comatose state, God gives him an opportunity to join them in song as he takes his last breath. 
Isn't that beautiful? Well, Mary and Martha wished that Jesus had been there when Lazarus took his last breath. But it didn't happen. And so Jesus says to her there in John chapter 11, verse 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So back to the question of that day. And for us, really, do we believe? Do we honestly believe that if we die, we're going to live? And that's the statement that Jesus has made, and he's asking her to convey that she does. And if I can be honest with you, I think there are a lot of Christians who don't believe it. I'm being honest. There are Christians who are, they want to believe, but yet they can't put themselves there that they honestly believe that Jesus has the ability to bring them back to life. And, and I make this statement because we're so afraid of dying. Even in the church, we're afraid of dying. If this last year and a half hasn't taught us anything, that this world is afraid to die. Even in the church, and it has been dividing churches all along. But Jesus says you don't need to worry about this. Death has nothing on you. If you believe in me, even if you die, you shall live. It should be something that we look forward to. The Apostle John wants us to really believe that Jesus is who he said he was, the great I am. And so over and over again, he uses that same terminology, I am, I am the door, I am the, I am the good shepherd, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I am the resurrection and the life. Some have suggested that the key verse in John's gospel is found actually in John chapter 20, verse 31. And it says this, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in Him. So John says, I've written all of this out here, telling you all about the life of Jesus, and made all these statements, and, and what He's done, and what He has said. Why? So that you can believe in Him, and in believing in Him, you will have life. The message of John is crystal clear. John is telling us of, of the identity of Jesus by using these I am statements. And it reveals that Jesus is even the God of the Old Testament. He is even the God in creation that spoke and everything came into existence. He is the promised Messiah that God told Adam and Eve would come one day and would crush Satan's head. The Jews were looking for him, and he was from the beginning. And he'll be there for us in the end because he is the great I am. Now, today's reference of I am the resurrection and the life is a statement I want us to look at because as believers, we've got to put our faith and our trust in this. I mean, our lives depend on that statement. Think about it for a moment. What he said. He said we're never going to die. Well, I, I'm confused about that because I know people die. My mother just passed away in August, and I understand she died. 
But Jesus says, no, you, you, you won't die. Even if you die, you're going to live. So there's something beyond that. Now, now traditional Jew- Judaism had two different thoughts about life after death. Or really, there was and there wasn't. All right, so um, when you look at these two di- ideas, the Sadducees, they saw grave as a very tragic end to everything. It was a one-way trip to Sheol. There was no way out. There was no passage anywhere else. There, there was even no possibility of being paroled from the grave. You were there, and that was the end. In Acts chapter 23, verse 8, the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees, what's it say about them? They acknowledge them all. So you've got the leaders in Jerusalem having two different ideas about what takes place after we die. And they're not settled on it. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, the preacher writes to us this, this understanding and it becomes a, a common understanding for the, at least for the Sadducees. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward for the memory of them is forgotten. You see, the Pharisees, they envisioned a resurrection, yet their resurrection was not a resurrection of the body. It was a a resurrection of the soul, of the spiritual aspect of the individual. You know, that inner person of who you are, when when you think through your mind's eye and you know who you are, that that thought process, not the physical. There's a spiritual life. But when Moses was up on the mountain and God was giving him the Ten Commandments, God made a statement to him there through that burning bush. When Moses wanted to know who he was, and he says, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. Not I was, they died They're gone, but I'm still here. He says, no, I am their God. They are still living. And he makes the statement that he is the God of the living because there is no ability for God to be beyond that. he's, He's the God of all those who have lived and continue to live. Now, ancient Greek philosophy, they also had a different understanding. And I have to this is the time frame in which Jesus is entering into the world And the common thought process in Roman thought, in Greek philosophy, in Greek ideals about about life and death, they believed that the the map of death was real and that when you died, you actually then got in a boat across the river Styx, led by the boatman, Charon, and, and eventually he took you to a place where there was a soulless, a bodiless, just a place of shades and shadows, and that's where you spend the rest of your life. And it was a place to be feared. So people try to live as long as they can. And this is the landscape in which Jesus is now entering. And it's a philosophy in which he's talking to that has a total different understanding now when he says, even if you die, you're going to live. Sunday school teacher had just finished telling her third graders about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And as she was explaining all the details, she asked them a question. She says, what do you think it would have been like when Jesus died and he came back to life? What do you think the first words that, that he would have said? And this little girl raised her hand in the back and she's excited and she you know, can't wait. And so she stands up and she shouts out, I know, I know. And the teacher says, okay, that's very good. What did he say? I know he said, ta-da! 
And really, that's what he says. Ta-da! It is, it's finished. I have conquered it. I have won. I have defeated death, and it has no mastery. It has no control over anything. Ta-da! And I think when we get into John chapter 11, Jesus is about to give them that wonderful ta-da experience. Because Lazarus, Lazarus is going to come back to life. So I want us to explore this morning just what what Jesus means when he states that he is the resurrection and the life, and and the promise that he makes in that. So there's three things I want us to look at. First off, the promise of the resurrection is clear. There's no muddiness to it. It's not blurred. It's as clear as can be. Lazarus was dead, but he became a living example of the power of Jesus' resurrection power because he conquers the grave. Now, Lazarus was really dead. I mean, it wasn't like he died and the, you know, the EMTs and the paramedics were there and they, they bring him back. That wasn't it. There was no CPR going on. He died and they've buried him and he has been in the grave four days. And Jesus is late. So, Lazarus' relatives and friends are grieving over his death and because in their estimation there is no hope for life after death. And Lazarus is gone. And they're a little bent out of shape with Jesus because he could have come, but he delayed. And they, they, you know, the message, message came back, you know, he's sticking around down there for a while. You know, he, he could have even, even made the comment down there on the other side of the Jordan, all right, he's alive. You know, and they could have gone back up and found him. Didn't he do that one time with the centurion's a servant who had died and Jesus made the statement, he's, he's alive, he's, he's healthy, he's, he's no longer going to die, he's okay. He didn't even have to be in Lazarus' presence, but he doesn't even do that. They knew that Jesus was God in the flesh, but they still did not believe in his resurrection power. It's interesting to note that twice before this, If you read in the book of Luke, chapter 7 and chapter 8, we find that Jesus performed a miracle of of interrupting funerals. That's what he did. Matter of fact, every time Jesus went to a funeral, it turns out not to be a funeral. All right? There were in chapter 7, we we discovered that there was a widow that lived in Nain, and, and, and her only son, her only living relative now, a son, has died. And the procession is going by, and and Jesus interrupts it and stops when he recognizes that the woman, she's all alone. And so then he tells her son to come back, to wake up. And he does. And then not too long after that, Luke chapter 8, just the next chapter, Jairus has a daughter who is sick, and and she's dying, and so he's going to go get Jesus to have him come back and heal her before she dies, but he gets word before he gets an opportunity to talk to Jesus, don't bother him, she's dead. And Jesus overhears it, and he says, no, she's not dead, she's just asleep. And so he takes Jairus and a couple of his disciples, and they go into the room, and he takes her by the hand and tells her to wake up. And she's alive. Preachers have often noted it's a very peculiar thing. that You can't find any instructions in the Bible about how to do a funeral. 
But yet, every time there's a funeral, Jesus interrupts it. But wouldn't that be great if we could do that today? But here we are in John chapter 11 at, at Bethany, just a couple miles east of Jerusalem, and Jesus is about to do the seemingly impossible thing because he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead who has been dead four days and his body has begun to decay and surely Martha says, he stinks by now, Jesus. It sends the religious leaders into a frenzy. And they begin talking amongst themselves about how they are going to kill him. And this conversation doesn't end there. It continues on with them until they fulfill it in Jerusalem a little bit later. That they do kill him. Second, the promise that those who believe in Jesus, they're going to receive more blessings after they die. Listen to what he has to say. Jesus says that there's a great reward coming for those who partake of the resurrection. In other words, there's more blessings to come. So he tells us in Luke 14, verses 12 through 14, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your, your friends or your brothers and, or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, he says... Invite the poor, the crippled, the, the, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because they can't repay you. For you will be repaid when? At the resurrection of the just. Jesus also says that those who partake in his resurrection, they can't die anymore. Once, once you're resurrected to life and you, you, you're part of that, there's going to be no more dying. Plain and simple. Luke 20, 34-36, he said to them, The sons of this age, they marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, they'll neither marry nor be given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore. They're equal to the angels and the sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. So once we physically die, if our faith is in Jesus, we're never going to die again. We're going to live forever. And so Jesus said that those who participate in this resurrection, they will really get to understand what living is about. So he tells us in John or in Luke chapter 20 verses 37 and 38 that the dead are raised. Even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls to the Lord, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. And Jesus says that those who put their faith in him will have a part in the resurrection of life. So in John chapter 5, verse 25 through 29, he says, Truly, truly I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead, the dead will hear. That's what he says. The dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear the dead will what? They'll live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Now do not marvel at this, Jesus says. For an hour is coming when all who are in their tombs will hear his voice and what? 
and come out. Those who have done good, they will come out to the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil, they're going to come out to the resurrection of judgment. But everybody who's in the tomb is going to hear his voice and they are going to live and they're going to hear and they're going to come out. It just depends on where they're going to go once they come out of that tomb. So it's important we put our faith in Jesus. Jesus says that those in who put their faith in him, he will raise up on the last day. So in John 6, 38 through 40, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this, he says, is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone, did you catch that? That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. Did you catch that? The will of God was that He would send Jesus into this world, that He would die for our sins, and He would be raised into new life, so that if any one of us, anyone, would believe in Him, that He is the Son of God, and we put our faith in Him, that even if we die, we're going to live, and He's going to raise us up on the last day. Jesus says that those who put their faith in Him, that even if they die, yet shall they live. It's what He tells Martha there in John 11, verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet shall he live. I don't know about you, but I know what 50 year, 55 years of life is like. That's all I can understand. I can't understand any more than that. Does anybody here know what 100 years is like? Nobody. How about 1,000 years? How can we even begin to grasp what eternity is like if we can't do even 100 years? But one of these days, we're going to understand what eternity is. But where we understand that's the big difference. Finally, the promise of everlasting life is in Jesus. We will live forever. Forever. How many of you have heard about the fountain of youth? A couple of you? All right. Well, let me tell you a little about the Fountain of Youth. It was something that was in search for years ago. They explored, went out around the world because they heard about this fountain, that if you drank from the fountain, that you would live forever. You would stay young and healthy and vibrant and all that. And so Ponce de Leon, he headed out from Europe, and he discovered what he believes to be the Fountain of Youth down in St. Augustine, Florida. But it wasn't called St. Augustine, Florida at that time. It was just a land in which people lived. And there was something unique about this spring of water that came up from the ground there that made life so much different than what they were experiencing in Europe. Now, here's back in the time when, when he did this in the 1500s, the, the average height was closer to five foot for a man than six foot. Matter of fact, I think Ponce de Leon was about four foot eleven conqueror of the world, right? And the average lifespan was around 40-something years old. But when he comes into Florida, he notices that there's a group of people that are living in that region, <coughs> and they're drinking from this spring of life. 
And there's something unique about them. A lot of them are over six foot tall, close to seven feet tall. I mean, this is great. And they're living up to be a hundred years old. Now the mortality rate in, in, in the ex life expectancy in Europe was only around 40 and they're living closer. This has got to be the fountain of youth. Now if you've ever tasted that sulfuric water, you might think different. All right? It is so filled with minerals, but yet Ponce de Leon thought he'd discovered it. People are still, however, in search of a mythical remedy that's going to give them life everlasting. They're searching for it in science. And we see that even the medical aspects of it because we got science today that is trying to create ways to keep you alive longer. We can even take your heart out of your body and put in a mechanical heart and it will work for you and keep you alive. We can take out lungs. We can take out all other kinds of organs and replace it so that you can live longer so that if that thing fails, you don't die. We've got a system that when you are extremely sick and you're almost in a comatose-like state, well, you are in a comatose-like state. They put you on a thing called life support. Now, I don't know what kind of life you're living when you're on it. But as long as they're pumping blood through your system, as long as they're giving you oxygen, and as long as they're feeding you through intravenous feedings, they are going to keep that body going. Now, the question is, is it life or is it mechanical production? We want to live. And maybe if we can keep your body going long enough that as the years go by, we might discover a medical or a scientific treatment that will enable you to come back and live a healthy and a whole life. Sociology and science are looking for ways in which we can increase the lifespan of people. And so we look at the life expectancy. As I mentioned back in Europe, but back in 1900 here in America, in 1900, the life expectancy of a man was 47 years. How many of you are over 47? You'd probably be dead. Aren't you grateful you live in the 19th, in, in not in the 19th century any longer, but, but now in the 21st century? You know? In 1977, the study shows that, that the life expectancy went from 47 years to, listen to this, 71 years in developed countries or 52 years in undeveloped countries. So life's getting a little bit better. However, today we discover that the life expectancy of a person living today has the potential of living 75 to 80 years. Yeah. This is great. We're doing so much better. Now, if you turn 62 this year, I want you to be aware, though, even though you may be living longer, Social Security is going to tell you that maybe you need to stay working longer, too. <laughs> you know? Uh, so you won't get your full benefits. If you turn 62 this year, you'll have to wait till you're 66 years and 10 months before you can retire with full benefits. And they're, they're gradually moving at older and older. All right, because if we live longer, then you need to be working longer, right? Well, Thomas Edison's great-grandfather, he once happened to read a book that was called The Art of Living Long by, by Cornaro. He was an Italian nobleman. Now, in his book, he, he taught people how they should live long, and he created rules regarding their eating, their drinking, the fresh air, their exercise, and all these different things. So Thomas Edison's great-grandfather adopted those rules of living, and he lived to be 102 years old. 
So Thomas Edison's grandfather thought that was pretty good. So he as well adopted the same rules for living, and he lived to be 103 years old. And, and his grandfather had seven sons, and which one of them was Thomas Edison's father, and all seven of them lived to be in their 90s by following the same pattern of rules and regulations. Now, think about this. Edison's own father lived to be 94 years, and he passed away without any illnesses. People are always seeking ways to increase their life, but there's only one way to increase your life for eternity, and it's in Jesus. So how many of you want to live forever? You know, I don't know if you've ever heard this, but the Chinese were searching... uh, Centuries before Christ, up to 500 A.D., they were searching for what they called the pill of immortality. They knew that there was going to be something that they could take that would enable them to live a lot longer. So for centuries, they were searching for it in the mountains. And a lot of times that pill had something to do with gold, too. But they kept looking for it. Because they knew if I just take something in this world that has been designed, I can live forever. There was a study done not too long ago at the University of Texas, and in their study they asked that same question, how many of you want to live forever? And if there was a pill of eternity, how many of you would want to take it of immortality? 33% of Americans said that they would take the pill of immortality, and it even rose a little bit higher if you could determine at what age you would stay. So if I could stay at 21, you bet. If I'm going to stay at 81, no, I think not. Right? So, but that's, we want to live somehow forever. To better understand what Jesus meant by life, I think we need to look briefly at the definition of what life is. So in the New Testament, there's a word that is used called zoe. It's where we get our word life. Zoe is the state of one who is possessed of vitality or is animate. It's every living soul. That's what they would say life is. It's the absolute fullness of life, both essential and ethical, which belongs to God and through Him both to the eternal Logos. Logos is word, the word that spoke life into existence, all right? And to Christ in whom that eternal Logos, that word that gives life, put on human nature. Now that word Zoe is found 35 times in the book of John. So I would say that it's probably a main theme for the book of John, if he's going to use that word that many times. It's also found 133 times in the New Testament altogether. Zoe is, is in reference to Christ being life. And, and, and know what John says there in, in chapter 20, verse 31. We read it earlier. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have Zoe, life, in his name. Now, if we look a little bit at the history and the culture of that term Zoe, the Old Testament thought that the body was a necessity for life, which is why they, they kind of felt there'd be no resurrection. There was no life after you're dead. So once your body dies, you're, you're gone. All right. Just kind of an annihilism aspect to it. All right. So, in, 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 so once your life could not separate from your body, it was a part of that. They also believed that the source of life, 
however, was when man had a relationship with God. So the term zoe corresponds very closely to another word, a Hebrew word, which is hey. And that means also the state of one who is animate, the fullness of activities and relationship both in the physical and the spiritual realm. All right? So zoe is this theme in the New Testament, and in the Old Testament we see it is as well. Life is important, but it's all designed in a relationship with God. In the New Testament, as in the Old Testament, the center of gravity in human life is the moral and religious nature of man. How you have a relationship with God depends on your life. All right? John's main theme is life. And so he wrote the book to show his readers how they could have life. And God gave Jesus life in himself so that he then could give us life as well when we put our faith and our trust in him. Life is found in him. And in him was life. And by the incarnation and by the sacrifice on the cross and by the resurrection of his body from the grave, we too can share in life. And how do we unite with him in that? Well, we unite with him in our resurrection as well, but it's not in us, it's in his resurrection. And so we can live. And so that key verse there, and, and we discover that in Jesus, life is more than just life, but it's abundant. Rob preached about this a few weeks ago in John chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Jesus says, I am the door. And if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Not just to live, but to really live. Truly understand what life is about. So to kind of wrap things up, what do we need to know from this message? Well, first off, that, that Christ is the life giver now. Not just in the future, but even right now in the very presence. And it's very important to know that, that he gives us this life. He is in the business of providing life for anybody who's willing to put their faith and their trust in him. He's experienced a physical and, and a factual resurrection. He is no longer in the tomb. His physical body came out of it. And, and, and here it is. Because he was able to do that, you'll be able to do that. Not on your own power, but on His. Because He will raise us to life. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 23. And Paul says, But if in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man death came death, by a man also comes also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die. So also in Christ, all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So Aristotle was wrong. Death is not to be feared. Sartre is wrong. The worst moment in your life is not the moment in which you die. The Greek philosophy and all their understanding of the afterlife and the river sticks and, and, and the, the boatman Charon and, and, and death and going to a soulless uh, 
terrible place, they're wrong. <coughs> Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He's the master over death. <coughs> he is the first begotten, in other words, the first born again from death. He's the author of the resurrection. He goes beyond the resurrection to a second point, in, that He is life. He is the fullness of life. And He gives people life, not only in the future, but now in the present. And He's here to emphasize with us that He is the great I Am, who was and is and is to come. The Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end. He's the fullness of life. So, why do we need to know this? Because that if we will believe in Him, we will receive eternal life as well. So that if we will connect with His resurrection into life, we can have a resurrection of life. But how do you do that? Well, Paul tells us that you are united with His death, burial, and His resurrection. And that if you die with Christ, you will also live with Christ. And we do that when we acknowledge Him as our Lord, as our Savior, and we are united with Him in baptism, and we live forever. You see, when we lose the fear of death and we connect with Jesus and His resurrection power, we really start to live the life. We don't have to worry about if I catch a disease and die. We look forward to the moment that we can pass from this life into the life that is to come. <clears throat> An Arab chief was once telling a story about <clears throat> a spy that, that was captured and sentenced to death in a Persian army. And the general <clears throat> would then bring the spies before him whenever they would catch them and he would drill them and ask them questions, but he would give them a choice. <clears throat> and here was the choice. You can either die by firing squad, or you can choose the black door. What do you want? Well, as most men, we want to be able to face our fears, and we know what it is to, be, to die by a, a firing squad. It's going to be quick, it's going to be painless, and it's going to be over. But what is behind that black door, we don't know. So people are often afraid of the unknown. And so they will choose something that they understand. And the same thing is true in life and death in this world. We want to choose the things that we're familiar with rather than that which is unknown. But a few times, the general said that there were men who did choose the big black door. And he was asked, well, what's behind the black door? He said, freedom, life, but it's their choice. And people will often choose what they can see and what they can understand rather than what they don't know. I want you to know this. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Believe in Him. Even if you die, you're going to live.
the worship team wants to come up. I pray that you will accept an opportunity that he offers you. <clears throat> because it's, it's, the choice is up to you. You know you're going to die. I, I don't know anybody who is not... Well, I know people who are still living, but I don't know anybody who has not died in history. We've all died. We're all going to die. It's, it's, it's something for each one of us to experience. We, we know that we cannot live in this present condition because of our bodies, because of sin, because it is the fall of man. Death is inevitable. But eternal life is a choice. If you believe in Him, you can live, even when you die. Let's stand together. Father, we are thankful that you've called us to understand who your son Jesus is, that you've given him an identity as I am. The door, the only way into heaven. The good shepherd who watches over us. Father, that, that you have placed within him the ability to not only conquer death himself, but then to vest in us the power to do that by his choosing, by his gift. Father, may we believe in him and live. It's in his name we pray. Amen.